Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 169. On today's show, we talk about a new Tutankhamun exhibit that focuses on the excavation rather than the artifacts. Let's dig a little deeper into those glorious old pages. (laughs) All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? Hello. Yeah, we are down here in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico again. Just can't get enough of the place. It's uh, nice <laughs> weather down here and we're having a good time. So we're just just hanging out and working. Yeah, just like a, I wouldn't call it a vacation, more of a working and having a nice view while we're doing it situation. <laughs> All right. So today we have two guests coming on to talk about basically an Egyptology exhibit. We're going to get into that. It's not just Egyptology. It's a little more specific than that. (laughs) But to to archaeologists (laughs) like Rachel and I, it's basically everything related to Egypt is just Egyptology (laughs) dot dot dot. So um, we're going to find out a lot more about it. But (laughs) we're bringing on Dr. Daniela Rosenau and Dr. Richard Parkinson. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no worries. So I think I'll start with you, Daniela, because we didn't know Richard was coming on the show until about 15 minutes ago. So I'll let you <laughs> just explain okay. real quick. T- tell us about the exhibit first and and what's going, where it is, what's going on. We'll have some show notes and some links in the, in the, um, in the episode description, but let's just talk about what this is that you guys have put together. Yeah. So, I mean, first, maybe to explain the reason why this is happening right now, it's because it's a very big year in Egyptology 2022. We have several anniversaries to celebrate. So there is 100 years since the start of the Egyptian independence. 
But then we're also celebrating the anniversary of the decipherment of the hieroglyphs that followed the discovery mm. of the Rosetta Stone 200 years ago, yes. And it's the centenary of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter and his team. And we have a very special reason here at the Griffith Institute, which is like the center of Egyptology at the University of Oxford, to celebrate this. And that is because this excavation took place on a concession that was granted to Lord Carnarvon. And Howard Carter was like his excavator in the field and mm -hmm. was allowed to keep the records. And then after his death, these records were donated by his niece to the Griffith Institute. Mm -hmm. So we really want to commemorate this centenary with, with an exhibition that will be based on this archival material. Mm -hmm. So what you can expect is to see about 150 items from the archive, most of them from the years of the excavation, you know, mm -hmm. all the things you produce during ex excavations, diaries, photographs, plans, maps, object cards, and then a few items from a bit earlier and a bit later. And the main, the key point with our exhibition, what we hope to achieve is that we don't only want to commemorate the discovery, but also kind of to interrogate it by looking beyond the colonialist stereotypes. Right. that, you know, everyone has in mind. Like, you know, most people think of gold when they hear Tutankhamun, but we want to mm -hmm. show it's so much more than gold. And also that it was a real team effort that lasted for 10 years with a lot of specialists. And it was not the story of a single heroic figure. And above all, we really want to showcase the role of the Egyptian team members, which, you know, have very often been overlooked and they have been written out a little bit of, of the usual accounts of the discovery. So we really hope that we can set a few things straight and that, yeah, we can challenge people's perception <laughs> of, of the discovery, the ancient burial and the modern discovery, really. Yeah. Richard, you got more to add to that? Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I mean, one of the curses that, uh, that surrounds the tomb of Tutankhamun is this horrible set of stereotypes of it as a, a great adventure story, the sort of Downton Abbey view of archaeology. And that's something we really want to try and move beyond. Yeah, then I mean, also that, you know, people just learn generally about how archaeology works, how we do that. And also that also these kind of archives we produce, they can tell us so much. They help us really to contextualize these kind of events in the social, the political, the cultural context, you know, because all of these archives obviously have kind of a dynamic history in themselves, no? and they still continue to shape our understanding of the ancient burial, the modern histories. And they also convey a touch of the real, we hope, that, you know, when people see some of these things, they will actually really be touched and get a sense of reality. Just to give you one example, one of the first objects you will see is Howard Carter's diary, opened on mm. the 4th of November, 1922, the day he discovered the first steps. And normally his hundreds of pages in the diary are neatly written, but this one is like written all over the page from the top, from the bottom <laughs> yeah, left to the yeah. top right and just says first steps of tomb found. And this is probably how close you can get to getting an emotional reaction by an Englishman. Yes, so, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And of course, people know it, know the words. They're very famous. They're reproduced everywhere. But when you actually see it on the diary, it means so much more than just the words. Yeah. the sheer materiality of, of the manuscript. I don't know a whole lot about the discovery of the tomb itself and how that went and if they knew where they were looking or like about the discovery. So it's interesting to hear you say that his diary was kind of scattered that day, but was it because they were expecting to find it or 
can you just like tell us a little bit about how the discovery itself went from what we know anyway? I think um, Carter and Carnarvon had been excavating for many years in the Valley of the Kings. And when you read later accounts, Carter makes it sound as if it was a grand romantic quest for this specific tomb. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a bit of a self-mythologizing. What we know is he was excavating very thoroughly. And this was the final area of the valley that he he got to, partly because it was was covered by the main path for visitors. And I think the discovery was totally unexpected. And what was certainly unexpected was the fact it was so intact. And the fact, once they got to the main doorway into the tomb, they found there were four chambers absolutely packed, full of artefacts, golden treasures, certainly, but also linen, flowers, bread, foodstuffs. The whole world of the Egyptian court was crammed into those rooms. And to get that conserved, to get it cleared, recorded, and then moved to the Cairo Museum took 10 years. So it was a phenomenal discovery. There must have been a great sense of shock as well as excitement. And you can see this in one of Lord Carnarvon's first letters, about the discovery, but where he, he really is you know, almost incoherent as he writes to a, a, an Egyptologist mm-hmm. in England. So we've all seen the the traveling Tutankhamun exhibits where, you know, like you guys said early on, it's all the, the gold stuff, the fancy flashy stuff. But this exhibit is different, as you guys have mentioned. You know, we've got your Howard Carter's diary and some other things. Can you talk a little bit more about the archive and and what you guys have in there? And I'm, I'm interested to hear, too, and maybe some of the things you couldn't fit into the exhibit. There's probably a massive amount of material <laughs> you had to pick and choose. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you know, it was very difficult to just choose 150 items, really. Yeah. Because as you can imagine, there are thousands of documents. And yeah, so what you, you know, what you normally produce on excavations, it's it's a lot of material where you need many different experts. So you know, mm-hmm. just to give you an idea, every day you write a diary where normally, you know, you put in who's working today or who's ill or who's visiting you or what the weather is like. But then there is also a much more detailed excavation journal where you might talk about contexts and, and layers and specific finds. So we have these journals and diaries. Then there are about 50 maps and plans. No? So mm-hmm. plan of the whole tomb, but then also the individual rooms or individual objects in the rooms. Um, then there are about 1,200 so-called glass plate negatives. And they were made by Harry Burton, who was the photographer of the team. And he was actually lent to Carter by the Metropolitan Museum, who had a mission just nearby. And I mean, that's one of of the aspects that I hope people will understand how many different specialists you need. It was only Carter and Knaven. And they realized very quickly, oh, God, we need help. (laughs) So they got the photographer who produced some of the, I think a lot of colleagues call them some of the most stunning images in archaeology. And there are also so-called lantern slides, which are a smaller version um, of these glass plate negatives that, that Carter hmm. transported in a wooden box around the world when he was giving his lecture tour. Wow. There are about three and a half thousand object cards, so little annotated cards where he was writing down for every object, the position, the dimensions, a description. Sometimes he produced little photographic copies and then annotated them with additional information in particular about materials and colors, because he was very aware of the fact that 
you know, all these images are obviously in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, there are also logbooks and, and backup books we have that were done by the chemist, the conservator of the team, Alfred Lucas, where he was writing down what kind of conservation measures were needed and were done on the objects. We also have something that's called the autobiographical sketches of Carter, where he started, you clearly wanted to write an autobiography, but then never managed. But we have these sketches. There are also 16 so-called autopsy drawings. So that's a bit misleading. The word autopsy these days means something else. So it's basically very detailed drawings that were made by Carter during the unwrapping of the mummified body. Hmm. So that was the process that took nine days and involved a huge committee, including two surgeons, an Egyptian and and an English uh, professor, doctor, for anatomy. And then in these wrappings, they discovered about 150 objects, amulets, rings, bracelets, necklaces, even daggers. And so whenever a row of bandages was removed, Carter would make these autopsy drawings. So a rough sketch of the king's body and then the exact position of every individual object. And then he did individual object cards and Burton photographed the images and then um, the objects, and then they would be removed. And then the next layer of bandages would be taken away. And then the next autopsy drawing would be produced. And so this is all part of, of our archive and of the exhibition. And then we also have some of the records he produced before he actually started working in the Valley of the Kings. So mm. now, he arrived in 1891 when he was 17. So he had already done a lot of work by the time <laughs> he discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. Um, and yes, so all of these of these uh, documents are part of, of our archive. And we have tried to choose a re- representative amount of, of different documents. And we, so we have some of the working notes and we have some of the papers he was producing, mm-hmm. like the plans for the final publication. But there's also later additions to the archive, which includes the diary of Harry Burton's wife, Minnie, which is quite a recent acquisition. And of course, that gives a wholly different light on on what was going on in Luxor in, in 1922 to 1932. Okay. And as Daniela was saying, the, the glass photographs are absolutely, the glass negatives, sorry, as Daniela was saying, the, the glass negatives are absolutely superb. Some of them are very carefully staged. Some of them are quite uh, spontaneous record shots of what's going on. But what they really show is the objects as they were found. So we're showing a photograph of the famous gold mask, but it's not just the mask as everybody recognises it now as a separate object. It's shown still on the mummified body of the king, part of a whole assemblage covering his Hmm. body, and it's surrounded with garlands of flowers. And of course, that is how it was meant to work, meant to be seen. And wonderful as the modern displays are, carefully conserved, beautifully lit, they, of course, lose that archaeological context. Sure. And that brings us back much closer to the ancient Egyptians. The, the, the sort of a poster image is one of the coffins with a tiny little olive wreath on the, <laughs> the royal regalia. And the olive wreath is superb. It's made so the leaves alternate, first one with a shiny side outwards, then with a pale side. And it didn't survive the excavation. It was too fragile. So the photographs and the notes record things that were impossible to preserve after the tomb was opened. Sure. That's so cool. 
you always hear about the amazing preservation in Egyptian tombs in particular because of the, you know, the dryness of it, the, mm. the, it just the, the conditions, but man, I had no idea it was so good. Yeah, it really was amazing. It's, it's just, it was clear from the start that certain objects would perish. There's yeah. a lot of the botanical remains and also some of the textiles. So, and it's just so amazing that we have these images from For how sure. everything was found in situ. You know? Because I, you are archaeologists as well, so you know, archaeology is always destruction. Mm -hmm. that you remove the filling of a room, it's gone forever. Yeah. yeah. And in that respect, yeah. the archive is just such an, an amazing tool we have. Well, Rachel and I are uh, cultural resource management archaeologists, CRM archaeologists here in the United States. So often when we're finding stuff, there's, you know, bulldozers <laughs> waiting for us to get off the land, right? And <laughs> we yeah. have to decide. And, and that's, but that's what we always, that's what I always tell people in my other podcasts and, and out in the field. Like, listen, if, even if you think you're over recording, you're probably the last person that's ever going to see this. So, you know, take pictures, take descriptions, take notes, because we don't know what's going to be important. We don't know what's going to, we, we don't know if anyone's ever going to see that again, because if it's not significant by certain criteria set forth by the government, well, it's going to be destroyed. So, yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, nowadays at least we do have these kind of very modern technologies, yeah, scientific help nah, that wasn't available back then, but but still, he, he did yeah. a very, very careful job. Nah, just yeah, as we said, nah, 10 years is a very long period of time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, one one last question before we take it to break. Did they work in seasons down there? Because I know they could probably work year round, but did they go down in shifts and no. seasons or was it straight through? No, I mean, that's still the same today. We try to concentrate our excavation seasons in spring and autumn because it's simply too hot in summer. Oh, yeah. And sometimes yeah. it depends. I know from a lot of American colleagues, actually, that their term <laughs> times are ah. so weird that they have to sometimes excavate in summer. And this yeah. is not pleasant. I can tell you that. And then over winter, there's even there might be actually also a time where it might get too cold or too rainy. Oh, okay. But, I mean, normally yeah. Carter was working from around November to April, early May. Mm -hmm. And obviously the last weeks were mainly filled with packing the objects and then putting them sure. in these crates and transporting the crates to the river and then on a barge to be shipped to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. One of the photographs of the conservators at work shows them in, in full tweed suits with their winter coats <laughs> hanging on a clothes stand just beside one of the fabulous guardian statues. So even the nice. English were finding it a bit chilly in the two at times. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, I think that's about it for this segment. We will come back on the other side and continue this discussion with Dr. Rosenau and Dr. Parkinson about the Tutankhamun exhibit that they've helped put together back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 169, and we are talking to Dr. Rose now and Dr. Parkinson about this Egyptology exhibit, and or sorry, this Tutankhamun exhibit. <laughs> Again, it's all Egyptology. <laughs> I was wondering, you mentioned this in the beginning about telling the stories of the Egyptian workers that were there. Did you, What kind of materials did you find to support their activities on the site and how are you telling that story in the exhibit? Unfortunately, it's really only through the photographs. We have oh, yeah. the names of the foreman. Carter thanked them in his publications and we we can't really match the, those names with the faces we see in Burton's photographs. And okay. for us, one of the key images is a shot of a, a set of shots of a young Egyptian boy who they had wear one of the king's necklaces. And they took the photographs for publicity purposes as a way of showing how the necklace would be worn. And they didn't mm. record the boy's name at all. Nobody thought that mm. was worthwhile. But mm. now, of course, it's become this wonderful image of a young Egyptian man wearing a necklace worn by a young ancient Egyptian king. Mm -hmm. And you can see the ancient world and the modern world really touching each other. And he looks uncomfortable in a sequence of <laughs> shots. He's obviously aware how heavy it is. He'll be aware how valuable it is. And in one of, one of the shots, you can see the muscles tensing on his face. And I think it really shows how the power dynamics were, were really colonialist, even at yeah. that time. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I mean, it's it's really a shame that we don't have the name. Yes. As Richard said, we, we know the names of the, the four chief foremen that Carter had worked with for many, many years. Yeah, and they were really trusted by him. Um, they were the people who, you know, were able to meet mm -hmm. all the daily challenges and the practical difficulties of, of the work. But apart from that, you know, we, we, we really don't have the names. We can see in the images that he employed probably around 50 local workmen and then obviously mm -hmm. dozens of children, which was kind of standard practice yes. in these days. And there were, of course, these men who were working under these very harsh weather conditions and high temperatures and doing the really physically demanding work. You know? But unfortunately, they are kind of invisible to us as in we don't even have their names. And then, right. you know, of course, the... The European excavators, they wrote their diaries and we have them. But you know, the Egyptian team members didn't do this. Probably most of them couldn't read or write. So what they did instead was, of course, going home in the evening and just telling their families what, what they had done during the day. And that's why Harry Burton's photographs are such a key to understand the crucial role of their presence. No? And, and in some of those photographs, you can see the relationship between the Europeans and the Egyptians. Carter is standing beside them. They're touching each other. They're both collaborating. They're both cooperating as they lift the items together. And I think mm. that physical closeness, it's, it's quite admirable to see it. 
um, <laughs> is just overlaid by all of the class and colonial right. cultural mm-hmm. apparatus of the time. Yeah. Um, we really don't want to judge and say this is evil and take it in a black and white manner, but just to explore the complexities, the different views, mm-hmm. and to remind people this is very much an official British archive. It leaves out the views of the Egyptians. You could have many other sorts of archives if right. if more views of the of the event had been captured. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, it is it is a very partial account, and I mean, we try to address mm. this. Obviously, in the audio guide, for instance, we are including an Egyptian voice, and we introduce a poet, Ahmed Chauki, mm. who wrote some wonderful poems about the discovery in the twenties, in the nineteen twenties, from a nationalist perspective. And he's talking about that Tutankhamun is giving back the Egyptian her- inheritance to, to his children's, uh, children. Yeah. And while we were finalizing the book, we discovered through the work of a colleague that the poet Shauki was actually a close personal friend of the Egyptian medic who took hmm. p- part in the analysis of the king's mummified body. So it, it really fitted together perfectly. It's really yeah. interesting to hear how the workers on site, the Egyptian workers would have potentially played into the day-to-day because I've worked in Peru and we had, you know, laborers on site. And this is just, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So it's not even that long ago, but the, the local people that worked on site with us, they, they knew more about the archeology span that we were excavating than we as students. And then even some of the like grad students did. So I can only imagine, and I'm sure we don't really know because all we have are photos, but I can only imagine that the Egyptian members of the team were probably just as much experts on the on the archaeology that they were excavating as the the men who have become the faces of this excavation more an observation than a question i guess you mentioned that this archive is a a british archive right and and it's stored is it stored at oxford and is that where this this archive is kept yeah it was stored in carter's flat in london and then it was well, it was first removed from London thirty nine because of the impending war, and I was already okay. clear that bombs might fall soon. Okay. And then after the war, Carter's niece, who was his heir, officially donated the archive and the copyright mm-hmm. to, to the Griffith Institute. Now, I'm just wondering, is but by the way, a- for everyone who's interested, this archive <laughs> yeah. is entirely digitized yes. and online, oh. freely available. Yes. So everything, go. every page from the diary, every plan, every object card has been scanned. And you find it on the Griffith Institute website. You can put in the link. Okay. Yeah, cool. we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes for that. That'd yeah. be awesome to take a look at. We talk to a lot of people from around the world on these podcasts. And there's a lot of stuff in the news uh, going around in the past, you know, five, 10 years about repatriation of... Uh, artifacts and things from the British Museum in particular and other museums to their home countries. I, I can't imagine with this being like personal accounts and photographs of the excavation and not actually like Egyptian artifacts, these aren't really subject to repatriation or is somebody clamoring to get this back down to Egypt to be part of the whole story? I think archives are beginning to be requested as part of repatriation. And I know the recently the Ashmolean Museum has fully digitized Arthur Evans's archive and shared that with, as it were, the source communities. Um, okay. And I think, of course, 
digital sharing is a great way forward. But it should be said, the archive has always worked very closely with Egyptian colleagues and has always sure. sort of shared the images for the conservation, the research, and of course, the great new displays of the artifacts themselves in, in the in the soon to open Grand Egyptian Museum in, in Cairo. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, exploring the archive together is is the way forward but certainly the international aspect is is hugely important right right so this exhibition opened on the 13th of april 2022 in case somebody's listening to this way in the future how long does it run and and where is it again it's at the the libraries in oxford right yeah it's in the western library in the treasury gallery Uh, it was opened by the egyptian ambassador and it will run from mid-april to the start of february 2023 so okay. to cover the key anniversary, which is the beginning of November. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So there's and enough time, a lot of time, and no excuse not to come to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's beautifully designed by the Bodleian exhibitions team. I think yeah. they really know how to make archives sing and how to make even potentially dull bits of paper really shine. And it's also worth checking the, the web, Western Library website from time to time because we're also organizing quite a wide-ranged program of public activities. And okay. Events. We'll be having the, um, the counter-tenor Anthony Roth-Costanzo, who, of course, is singing uh, Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaten, in the Philip Glass Opera at the Met, nice. coming for a visit to... Um, he, he's a friend of the archive. He sort of uh, did his historical research at the British Museum and, and also oh. in the Oxford Archive. So he's he's a, a nice. personal friend. So we're we're sort of hoping that will show people, you know, archives are not dead. They're records of exciting <laughs> excavations. They can tell new historical stories, but they can also inspire new works of art and new performances. So that that's really part of the aims to to show quite what potential you have in these papers. And one event I am very much looking forward to personally because I'm a specialist for glass is a workshop I'm organizing soon where our keynote speaker will be Dr. Katja Borschert, who is actually on a daily basis working with the mm. glass finds from the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Egyptian Museum mm. in Cairo. And I'm very much looking forward to that. She will ex- explicitly talk about the amazing glass finds from the tomb and also how our archive and the archival material helped her in the conservation work of these objects. Okay. And this is all being released alongside a new book as well called Tutankhamun Excavating the Archive. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, the book actually came first before before the exhibition because of publication deadlines. Sure. And it includes 50 items from the archive. And these were selected by the, uh, the archival team. I then edited it and wrote the introduction. And we then... Daniela and I expanded the selection of items for the exhibition subsequently. So they tell exactly the same story, but it's organized slightly differently. One one works in the book format, the other works in a a more thematic exhibition. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, it's the same designer. And I think we're both really delighted with the the production values. They show off the quality of the photographs uh, and the texture of the archival papers. Yeah, I think that's very complementary. It's not a yes. standard one-to-one exhibition catalogue. No. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it was also due to Corona and yes. that work on the exhibition couldn't really, the physical work couldn't really start earlier because, you know, everyone right. was in lockdown. <laughs> but the book yeah. had to be written at, at a certain point to be ready for the opening. 
So it was a little bit okay. of the other way around approach, but I think worked beautifully. I know. I yeah. think they, they fit together very nicely. Absolutely. All right. Well, anything else that we haven't covered that you want to tell people about this exhibit or Egypt or anything else? <laughs> well, I Lots think of stuff, I'm sure. one important thing is, of course, to encourage people, encourage everyone to, of course, travel to Cairo and have a look at the real objects. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a different world, of course, if you if you see the objects. But at the same mm-hmm. time, of course, keeping in mind that yeah, this is both very complementary and you see these objects out of their context, so to speak, but beautifully right. displayed. So this, this goes all hand in hand and I can only encourage people to, yeah. to go to Egypt and have a look at these fantastic objects. I'm sure like highlights have been seen by many people during these touring exhibitions, but seeing the whole thing is just breathtaking. I can imagine. Well, I think then... We'll call it there. Rachel and I are going to come wrap up in segment three and talk about some other stuff that we have coming up. But this has been a great conversation, Dr. Rosenau and Dr. Parkinson. And we definitely thank you guys for coming on. Oh, great pleasure. Thank you very, very much for the invitation. Pleasure. Thanks yeah. very much. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And I think, I mean, uh, I've got some clients over in England and we're trying to get over there this summer. So maybe oh, we well, can come see the oh, exhibit. Oh, yes, please. Do, do, please. Please. Do. Do. Please come and as I said, <laughs> have a look at the website. You might be able to combine it with some of the events we have yes, organized. Yes. Some yeah. of them is in the Botanical Garden in July. It might yes. be interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a that's a good reminder that to look down at your phone or whatever you're listening to this on, we'll have some links to the exhibit and, and to a bunch of other stuff uh, on the show notes for this podcast. So take a look at that. And with that, we will take a break and come back with episode 169 on the other side. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here from the APN. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Use the code TAS, that's T-A-S at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code, that's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code TAS for 30% off your first three months at Zencaster.com. We've got a contest. The folks over at AEO Screen are giving one of our listeners a brand new screen. Pick anything from their website and they'll ship it to you. Not an archaeologist? No problem. These are great for gardening and other tasks around the house. I mean, come on, right? Anyway, these are great screens and you won't be disappointed. We'll pick the winning entry at the end of May. Head over to arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to enter. It's easy and you can get multiple entries. Increase your chances by helping out others. That's arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to win. Want to keep this conversation going? Want to talk to the hosts of this show and other fans? Then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts, other fans, and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content. You'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad-free. Head over to arcpodnet.com members for details. That's arcpodnet.com members. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 169. This is our final segment. And I got to say, I don't know if you heard the difference between the last segment <laughs> and this segment. Yeah. But first off, Rachel was in the other room in our Airbnb. We were both using our recording software, but it just, it just, 
it didn't work because my computer kept dropping yeah. the Wi-Fi for some reason. I don't know if I was too far away from it or what, but right. I, I was definitely cutting in and out. So I felt like I couldn't really participate in the interview. It was getting frustrating. Plus, I didn't think about microphones. I brought two microphones that plug into the same device. Only one of that device can be only plugged into one computer. So right. Rachel was mm-hmm. on her headphones microphone, which didn't sound great. So she didn't get to participate much in the first two segments. Well, also, there is technology issues, but there's also sick issues. Like body technology issues? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you had a pretty bad cold and that's actually why we yeah. ended up only doing two segments. I mean, they were great and they they had a lot to talk about, but you were just so like yeah. wrecked from a, a sick standpoint and you just couldn't handle it. Listen, so. I'm pretty convinced that because of some of my other work going on that we're going to end up being in Oxford over the summer at some point. <laughs> I, I just like, I'm putting that in the You want to put that in the world? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm going to be there. Yeah. You and I are going to be there and we'll be able to go see the exhibit and, and maybe talk to them again. It would be really cool. In context. Yeah. And, and that's what we decided to do here is to kind of talk about our like impressions of, yeah. of the conversation. And like we said, I was only there for like half of it, but I feel like there was a lot I wanted to say, but I didn't mm-hmm. get to say because I just couldn't really participate in the interview. Right. Well, one thing I want to start off by talking about is when they first presented this topic to us and we read the kind of description, I guess, of the exhibit and then it was mentioned in segment one and I brought it up in segment two about how one of the things they wanted to try to do with this that is never done during the usual Tutankhamun or even Egyptian exhibits entirely Mm -hmm. is talking about the stories of the Egyptian workers. Yeah. And anytime you've got colonial archaeology happening and it's happened all over the world, which means typically people from England or some other, you know, Western civilization that is off in some other country digging, Mm -hmm. there's always locals that are helping. I mean, Uh, you and I even experienced that. I... Well, I don't know if you did in Peru. Did you have local workers in Peru? So, yeah, we definitely did have local workers in Peru. And I felt like and now I was a student at the time, at least the first time. And then going back this, the next couple of times, I was still basically a student, you, you mm-hmm. know, an advanced student at that point. Right. And the the workers, the local workers, they were better at the archaeology than the students, for sure. And even some of the grad students. Yeah. These were people who worked with us season after season. They... I don't know what their education was exactly, probably almost none, probably high school (laughs) or even middle school level, but they were so good with the excavation. So, and their stories deserve to be told. And I'm sure that in Egypt a hundred years ago, it was a very similar situation. I bet in Egypt right now it's a very similar situation. I mean, the the local workers just are not part of the report. Now, I'd be willing to bet that they're mentioned in reports these days, like by name, Mm -hmm. which is something more than was done in the past. But even so, it's probably just, I mean, scientists just don't think about it. They're not making a, they're not making a strict scientific contribution aside from the fact that they're the ones excavating and doing yeah. the job, but they're excavating under the direction of whomever the, you know, scientist in charge is, right? Yeah. And you can't gloss over that fact. I mean, the, yeah. the archaeologist in charge, the one with the, you know, quote unquote education, it's the one who's making the decisions about where to go, what they're seeing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it, when it comes down to like, what are we actually looking at here in this excavation unit, the local workers sometimes have a better idea of what it is that they're seeing than the people that are coming in from the United States or other countries to do the work. Yeah. And I was impressed and yet sad at the same time on their answer for, you know, how they're really highlighting these local workers in Mm -hmm. Egypt back for the Tutankhamun excavation, which took 10 years. Mm -hmm. They said that the only real evidence that they have is seeing them in photographs. 
They yeah. weren't really mentioned in notes. They don't themselves have diaries that are accessible to the to the museum. Mm-hmm. They may have kept diaries. We don't know, though. We don't have them. Yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to see if because of publicity for an excavation like this, if maybe some family members can come forward who might happen to have diaries or something like that that could be contributed to it because it would be nice to right. have that perspective if it was out there somewhere. Well, that's another thing I didn't really get a chance to ask. I was kind of wondering if given the fact that there's been pretty much continuous excavation in Egypt every season, I would imagine for the last 150 years, just about mm-hmm. maybe 120 or 30 years. I mean, it's just so much to find out there, so much to do. And you're always invoking local help to help find stuff, to help excavate stuff, to help just like be part of the part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And then nowadays, there are Egyptian archaeologists, like, like from Egypt, that mm-hmm. are working there as well, also probably employing local help. And mm-hmm. I just wonder if there's a, you know, Egypt has a, a 6,000 year history of master and apprentice relationships. And I just wonder if there's a, like a family descendant relationship. Oh. Like, are there people who are grandchildren or great grandchildren of the people who excavated at Tutankhamun that yeah. are still working in the, the valleys in Egypt? In, in the archaeology like yeah. sphere. That yeah. would be really cool to That'd find out. Yeah. And, and, and if we knew that, if we were able to talk to them and if the focus of the exhibit was this topic, it wasn't, mm-hmm. but if the focus of the exhibit were this, mm-hmm. that's one of the things I would want to go and try to journey over there and find out. Say, hey, you know, do, do you have any family members that did this? And is there any anything we can see that recounts their experiences, you know? Yeah, that was definitely out of the scope of this project because they were really building this exhibit based on the archives that they had available to them, which were from the items that were shipped back to the UK mm-hmm. from the excavation. So to do what we're talking about is almost more like an ethnographic study back to the area where the excavations were done, which was out of scope, but would be really cool to do at some point for sure. Yeah, for sure. So it was really neat to just hear about this. And I, and I actually wish that this exhibit could be in some place a little more, I don't know, visible. Not that Oxford isn't a renowned you know, institution. Yeah. And, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to make their way through there, especially given that it's going to it's going to go on until November. But uh, well, no, it goes until 2023. The oh, first bit oh, of 2023, I think. Oh, they that's said. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So and there is the book, too. Yeah. And then there's book. the online archives, mm-hmm. you know, which we'll link to in the show notes. Yeah. There's a lot to do from a digital yeah. standpoint if you can't make it there physically. But it does seem like it would be really cool to get there if you can. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I've always complained about with museums is like they mentioned, it was really difficult to choose 150 pieces. That's what they decided was going to be in the exhibit mm-hmm. was 150 pieces. And they're like, so it was really difficult to choose from the thousands of materials that we have, but I haven't looked at the archive yet, the digital archive online Mm -hmm. to see what's there. But if everything is there, I mean, I understand that the job of a, of a museum exhibitor designer, no, like a designer, an exhibit designer. Yeah. Yeah. Curator. Yeah. Well, not not even a curator, but just like the designer of the exhibits. Uh You got to tell them from a curatorial and from the uh, archivist archivist standpoint, what story do you want to tell? Yeah. And then they try to pick all the pieces that tell that story. And then the person who designs the exhibit, you know, like you can say, I want this house and I like these furnishings, but you really need an interior designer to pull it all together because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have that skill. Right. <laughs> it's going to look like I shopped at Ikea. So, <laughs> and I just said, I want that room. Yeah. But it, it's amazing how they can take that little amount of material and tell that kind of story, which would be really mm-hmm. fun to see the exhibit. Because I think 
you know, museums, like I said, I've always had a hard time with museums because they don't they don't display everything because they can't. Mm -hmm. But even if they were able to display everything, would you be able to make any sense of it without being an archivist and knowing what was in there? Yeah, I I'm really excited about this exhibit because it is different and it's it gets away from the the artifacts, the the thingness, you mm-hmm. know, because the exhibits always focus on the things that are found and it doesn't always tell a story very well. It's just like, look at this gold thing and look yeah. at this bronze thing and look at this yeah. shiny thing over, you know, it's just, it's all about the things. And I think what they're trying to do is actually tell the story of the excavation itself, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting and it's a different approach and I'm excited to you know, maybe if we go (laughs) see something like that. And it's so much more focused on excavation. Excavation for an archaeologist is, it's just like maligned a little bit as far as, yeah, as what people know about archaeology. You you don't know about the dirtiness of it, the dustiness, the carving through what feels like granite soil (laughs) to get to whatever it is that you're, you're trying to find. And hopefully they kind of tell some of that, actual actual excavation story and it's not just about the artifacts so that's exciting yeah i mean museums of the future i'd love to see different layers and different abilities to do things like one of the reasons that we do archaeology is to tell the story of the past and usually that story that recreation is the only thing that's told Mm -hmm. unless you're looking at you know a a primary source material report or something like that where they Mm -hmm. will get into the the nitty-gritty and that's why a lot of people say crm reports are boring because they don't really tell a story well they're not really supposed to tell a story yeah crm reports they're presenting data yeah they're yeah. like the initial the initial data representation and yeah. this is why academic archaeology is seen a little bit differently because they have time to spend years if not decades on a single site and every season they have the data aspect of it which very few people probably see you know people who get to see that are probably in Uh, conferences, seeing a paper presentation or something Mm -hmm. like that. But then these academics, they go and make a book out of it. Yeah. Or even a textbook with, with this in there or, you know, some other material that actually does tell the story. So they get the chance to do both. But in the CRM archaeology that we do, that Mm -hmm. a lot of people in, in most countries do, as opposed to academic archaeology, we call this professional archaeology. Not that academics aren't professionals, but that's just the terminology. Yep. It's, we don't often get to tell the story aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And when we do, there's often not time or skill or inclination to, to write some sort of popular book about it. But yeah. we might be able to get to tell that story in a, in a conference presentation paper. But again, that paper has limited outreach and it's usually only given to archaeologists. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's media there if it's a big enough conference, like essays often have media presence there, things yep. like that. But that being said, the story just doesn't get out there. So it would be nice. I, I've got an Oculus Quest 2 VR headset, and it would be nice to see something where you can walk through an exhibit and see the story aspect of it, but mm-hmm. then flip a switch and see the excavation aspect of it. Yeah. I want to see layer by layer how things were laid in the ground, yeah. how things were found. And I want to be able to reach out with my hands and peel up these layers and pull things out of the ground and put them back and, and yeah. see how the context really plays out, you know, and how that translates into the story. Yeah. That's a really cool use of VR technology to 
like be able to stand in an, in an excavation and do that. That yeah. would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, idea. I, I could even see if you really wanted to, if you really had some, some decent VR technology was, and, and some, some good graphics put into it. I mean, you could probably even get in there and dig a little bit yeah, depending yeah. on how it was set up. Yeah. You know, I've, I've played with many apps where you've got really fine tuned control with your hand and your controllers and you even have a, a vibration element to your controller. So you could, you could program in the feel of like scraping actual, back with yeah. a trowel or, or something like that. The, the problem is right now is there's no resistance. There's no, you feel the vibration of the motion, but there's no resistance against the ground. Mm. There's no resistance. Like if you pick something up, you can't feel it. Right. right. You know, and, and that, that weight will probably, I wouldn't say never come to VR because that's a pretty bold statement, but it's hard it, to recreate. It, it's hard to recreate. And even yeah. if somebody was in some sort of full, you know, immersion gel situation where they could have pressure and tactile senses like that, like who can afford that? Yeah. Like even yeah. if that existed, it's mm-hmm. going to be a long time before everybody can afford that. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll have to wait for Elon Musk to invent a chip that goes in our brains and we can <laughs> just imagine we're feeling it. So uh-huh. yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's really cool. I, I, I like this new type of exhibit. Not new. I mean, I'm sure this is done before from an archival, archival standpoint, but it's new for the Tutankhamun story. It is. And yeah. it, it does seem to be kind of a new thing in the representation of popular archaeology. Like, look at the Sutton Hoo movie. That that was about yeah. the excavation of something, yeah. not not the actual like thing that they found, although they did talk about that too. So, uh, you know, it's just really cool to like focus on how you get these things, how you uncover these things. So then you can make the interpretations and tell the story about them. That is a really cool point because it would be neat if the story that is this excavation were taken by a production company and turned it into a really movie. It would be really cool. Yeah, it would be so I'd, cool. I'd like to do, you know, we have our, our live show, if you haven't seen that yet, but, uh, and we've put it on hiatus while we were traveling basically mm-hmm. because we weren't sure what internet and things were going to look like. But yep. when we get back to it, it would be interesting to do some research and see how Tutankhamun and the excavation, the discovery has been represented in media. In, in me- yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I'm sure yeah. there are films that have that have had it at least as part of it or in there or, you know, part of the story. I don't know if there's been any primary stories that involved the, the discovery or anything Mm -hmm. like that. There's definitely been documentary after documentary after documentary that have talked about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's been done to death, but has there been a, has there been a media representation from a historical fiction standpoint? That'd be really cool. That'd be really cool. And, one of the things I've been researching actually for the live show is Agatha Christie and the the books that she wrote and she was very influenced by archaeology and like yeah. hers are all like whodunit murder mystery type of books yeah. but they have a distinct like feel of being on an archaeological site a lot of them do so it would be cool if I mean not she didn't set any in at yeah. the the King Tut excavation but it would be cool to like <laughs> if there's something kind of yeah. like that out there that would be neat well one one way I'd like to see this represented too and I'm just going to put this out in the world it's it's my idea and I'm sure somebody's done something similar to this but I've always had the idea for a book and I'm just not a writer in that sense so I'm probably never going to get it done but I've always had the idea of having a, a book and, and to me it was it was more focused around CRM archaeology because people don't talk about that enough. But just some some random excavation up in northern Nevada where we typically do a lot of work where you've got somebody the, the, that's the focus of the story, uh, at least one focus of the story, and they're starting an excavation. You know, they're, they're assigned a unit and they start digging down and it's, you know, them digging down in the unit, what they're finding, what they're doing. It's told from a story narrative mm-hmm. standpoint. But then the next chapter is 
the point in time at which that took place. Mm. Right. So, so like if a, it were 5,000 years ago. Yeah. To it, like tell that story yeah. of what they're finding in that unit or on right. that site. That would be and, cool. And archaeology works backwards in time. Yeah. We start with forward and we move backwards yeah, because yeah. we're digging down. So I'd like to see the story told that way. Yeah. That'd and, be so cool. And you end with the beginning. Yeah. Right. And I would love to see this story of Tutankhamun told that way where you've got the, you know, probably opens on the discovery of the tomb or something like that, but then, you know, flashes to the laying of the last stone by the Egyptian religious Mm -hmm. uh, figures that were probably closing up the tomb. Because one of the things that made me think about this was how they have photographs of Tutankhamun's, I guess, sarcophagus headdress kind of thing. Yeah, like the chest plate or whatever. Yeah, the whole gold thing and how it's displayed. But really, it's it's part of the whole ensemble with the flowers around it that were still preserved, Mm -hmm. you know, thousands of years later in this Egyptian tomb. And no one will ever see that again, except in the photographs that were taken. Right. So seeing how that all played out, like the last days of Tutankhamun, you mm-hmm. know, and then how that was, because I'm sure, well, it was a boy king. Uh, and I would, I would be, I, w- I wonder if they start working on the king's, on the Pharaoh's tomb. Yeah, not king, Pharaoh. I wonder if they start working on the Pharaoh's tomb, like the minute they become Pharaoh, because they know right. they're going to have an elaborate tomb. Right. Because if he, he died so young, I actually don't remember how he died or, or why he died so young. I don't so think young. we know exactly. Yeah. But if yeah. it were a surprise, like how long did his body like lay in state before they got yeah. something together? Yeah. Or do they just literally start working on it right away? So yeah. they already had something in the works. Well, I don't know a lot about Egyptology, but I think the reason that like the pier- the great pyramids are as big as they are is because those pharaohs were able to rule for as long as they did before they died. They had, yeah. they just, they had long reigns which meant that they had a lot of time to to build their funerary monument you know king tut didn't have that kind of time he died when he was like what 19 or something like that very very young so yeah yeah i don't think he had a large large tomb around it he was called king tut was he pharaoh or a king when did they change that terminology i think pharaoh i think we've anglicized it and called it king King called him king yeah plus it works really well with the uh Steve Martin just, uh, Saturday Night Live skit oh for God. King Tut. If you haven't seen that, oh you really ought to go take a look. Oh, you had to get a 90s reference it's in, didn't really you? Good. Or maybe 80s. That's yeah, that's our pop culture archaeology <laughs> reference for Tutankhamun Common right there. Yeah. So just go to YouTube and type in Steve Martin King Tut. It is amazing. So. Wow. Anyway, that's it for this show. Thanks. And I'm glad we were able to <laughs> squeeze this last segment in because yeah. I was sick for a few days and then Rachel picked it up right after I that. Did. Yeah. I know. Oh, we're about to go take COVID tests and see if they're going to let us back in the country because yeah. we're still in Mexico. So We might be in Cabo for another week. Yeah, we've been yeah. basically quarantined the whole time we were here because we got sick basically immediately. So yeah. we'll, uh, so. yeah, hopefully cross your fingers that we're back in the country <laughs> tomorrow. Indeed. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for that, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this.